0: After the scripture readings, we'll sing Psalm 103, stanza 5, 103, stanza 5. So first, Psalm 130, listen to the word of God. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And the gospel according to John, chapter 8, reading the verses 2 through 11. John chapter 8, verse 2. Early in the morning, He, our Lord Jesus Christ, came again to the temple. All the people came to Him, and He sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to Him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. As far the scripture reading, Psalm 103, stanza 5. So the text for the morning sermon is that last passage out of the gospel according to John that I just read, John 2, 8-11. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, at the outset of this sermon, we need to address for a moment what is stated above our chosen text. These words, the earliest manuscripts do not include seven, verse 53 to eight verse 11. And then it says further in the footnote, some manuscripts do not include 7:53 to8:11. Others add the passage here. Or after 7, verse 36, or after 21, verse 25, or after Luke chapter 21, verse 38, with variations in the text. Now, many articles have been written about this and opinions expressed about whether or not these words actually belong in the text or or not, and if it belongs where it belongs. The discussions go back many years, even as far back as the church fathers. Augustine, who lived from the year of our Lord, 354 to 430, knew of the discussion. Augustine was one of the church fathers, along with men such as Ambrose, Jerome, and others, who accepted the passage as authentic and preached a sermon for, on it. In fact, Augustine wrote, some of little faith, and I'm quoting, some of little faith, I suppose, from a fear lest their wives should gain impunity in sin, remove from their manuscripts the Lord's act of indulgence to the adul- adulteress. He said, and I, he said, as I continue to paraphrase what he said, He said that some rejected this passage as authentic because, according to them, Jesus seemed to be a little bit soft on adultery, which is, of course, not true at all. Doesn't Jesus say to the woman, go and sin no more? God's grace... Is always startling. It startles us. God is more gracious than we are and that we can imagine. John Calvin also said in his commentary on the gospel according to John on this passage that it does belong to the text. Calvin writes, and I quote from him, It is plain enough that this passage was unknown anciently to the Greek churches. Those were the churches on the east side, east end of the Roman Empire. And some conjecture that it has been brought from some other place and inserted here. But as it uh, has always been received by the Latin churches, so those were the churches on the western end of the Roman Empire and is found in many old Greek manuscripts and contains nothing unworthy of an apostolic spirit, he concludes, John Calvin concludes, there is no reason why we should refuse to apply it to our advantage. End of quote. Now it is true that other church fathers and other learned men can be quoted to support the view that it does not belong to the original text of Scripture. But the argument that it does belong, that we should consider it as belonging, is compelling. We need to admit that the text is a bit, a bit fluid as far as where in Scripture it, be, it best fits, but good scholarship says that it belongs here, where are editions of the English Bible place it. Here in the Gospel according to John is the best place, that it does belong and that this is the best place for it. It is also good to observe that the teaching of this passage does not conflict with any other teaching of Scripture. If it did, if this text conflicted with some other teaching of Scripture then we, we would be uh, encouraged to, to say that it does not belong. But it, it, it's completely fitting with the message of Scripture. So we need not have any suspicion about its ont- authenticity. Rather, when you read it, and when you heard it, heard it read, you want to say, yes, that is exactly My Lord Jesus, the one whom I know and whom I love. Its teaching is entirely consistent with all the teaching of Scripture and entirely consistent with the way and the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. So after those sort of preliminary uh, considerations, let us now go to the actual text into the actual story. In this story, in this narrative, besides the crowds that gathered around Jesus that early morning when he was teaching at the temple, there are, besides the crowds, there are three, three movements or three players in this narrative. There is, first of all, the scribes and the Pharisees, and secondly, there is the woman who was caught in adultery. And then thirdly, there is Jesus. So we'll look at these three. So first of all, the scribes and the Pharisees. Who were the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, as you read through any of the Gospels, any of the four Gospels, you come across, you will come across the scribes and the Pharisees. And as we read about the scribes and the Pharisees in the Gospels, we see that they were always opposed against Jesus and they always tried, were trying to trip him up unsuccessfully, I would add. So, scribes and Pharisees, who were the scribes? The scribes were very learned men. They were among the few who knew how to write. And the main thing that they were engaged in was writing. And copying and transmitting the law of Moses. So that was the scribes. The Pharisees were interpreters of the law. So they took the law that the scribes had written and they interpreted it and tried to, and and applied it to God's people and taught them from it. So that's what they were engaged with. And as we read through the gospels, you see that these two, the scribes, And the Pharisees were often in cahoots against Jesus. Now, we should also add that they were very, very cruel. The way they treated this woman was beyond cruel, it was despicable. And it's it's clear that they were just using her as a trap, she was a pawn in the game that they were playing. One of the first things we want to ask is, where was the man? If they had caught her in the very act of performing adultery, where was the man? It takes two to perform an act of adultery. Well, they let the man get away. And who knows, he may have been in on the plot and the trap. So they wait until Jesus has come back to the temple. And there's a great crowd around him, and he was teaching them. At that precise moment, they take this woman and they push her, they place her, in front of Jesus and the crowd. It was cruel. It was despicable. Not only were they cruel and despicable, but they were also hypocrites. As verse 6 says, this is all a ploy to test Jesus. Teacher, they said, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses... In in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. They were trying to throw Jesus onto the horns of a dilemma. If he, on the one hand, said... Yes, go ahead and stone her. She deserves to die. Then he would have lost much or all of the love of the people. Jesus had spent his ministry teaching the people and reaching out to the despised tax collectors and sinners. Sinners calling them to repentance. He was well known to have healed the ill, the diseased, the unclean, and raised the dead. He placed his hands on the unclean and the dead. So if he said, yes, go ahead, stone her, then they would have charged him with actually not having any love at all. For, for, the, for the common people and the hurting folk, that it was just an act. All this purported love of Jesus was just an act. They might even have been able to successfully bring a charge against him with the Roman authorities because Rome, in all of its provinces, kept the, the death penalty for itself. And if Jesus said, yes, go ahead, execute her, then they might have been able to mount a case against Jesus with the Roman governor. So that was the one side of the... that was the one horn of the dilemma. The other horn was if Jesus, on the other hand, said, no, don't stone her, don't execute her, rather let her live, then they would have said, aha, he goes against the law of Moses. He's an unworthy teacher. So you see, it was a setup. If he answered one way, he'd appear harsh and unfeeling and uncaring. And if he answered the other, other way, he would look like a bleeding heart. These men were very religious, but their religion was empty of love and integrity. Instead of love, they were cruel. And instead of being men of integrity, they were hypocrites. Well, there's a lesson for us all right here. A lesson emerges for us. And the lesson is never to go forth as a very religious person devoid of love and compassion. Such an attitude, such an approach does not work the righteousness of God but is destructive for community and individual lives. Okay, that was the scribes and the Pharisees. What about the woman? The woman. This nameless woman was a woman marked by Tragedy. It was a time of festival in Jerusalem. We know from chapter 7, verse 2, that it was the feast of the Festival of Tabernacles, one of the three great pilgrimage festivals in Jerusalem. Now, sadly, religious festivals are often marked by excessive partying, drinking, and debauchery and immorality. Anyone who has lived in Brazil knows about Carnival, the religious festival, which is very sensual and sexual. As for Mexico, Easter is the Easter weekend is a time that you want to stay away from the beaches. You want to stay away from New Orleans on Mardi Gras. But we don't need to look very far away when it comes to the consideration that religious festivals are often marked by excess. Think of Christmas time in our culture, time of great excess um, of eating and drinking. So many people's lives are wrecked during festivals, even religious ones. Okay, I draw your attention back to this woman. We know she was a married woman because it says that she was caught in the act of adultery, not fornication. Not to get too technical about it, but the language points out that she was a married woman. Her life is destroyed. It's a wreckage. The men accused her of adultery. They caught her in the very act. Imagine. There There were multiple witnesses. Can you see her in your mind's eye? Eyes cast down in humiliation. Her clothes disheveled. Likely missing some of her clothing. She doesn't need to be told by these men that that her life is a wreck. In many ways, she is the symbol of immorality in our culture. She is an image of culture's depravity and degradation. We cannot overlook the sinfulness of the woman because the text speaks about that. Her actions were against the seventh commandment. She had been unfaithful to her husband. She had slept with another man. And as you know, sex outside of the covenant of marriage is sin and leads to destruction. And yet we want to come back to the question, where was the man? It takes two to tangle. Well, as it happens so often, even today, So it happened in Jesus' day. Women were used and abused and cast aside. Think only of the use of prostitutes or consumption of pornography. Even the very young are used as prostitutes and in pornography. Most, if not all, of these, these women and girls do not want to be doing what they are doing, but somehow they are trapped and they are ashamed when they are exposed. Where are the men? I know that it is not only men who, use, who consume pornography, but we know that the vast, vast majority of those who use pornography are men. So, brothers, let me say, don't be men who think that you can just walk away from this type of thing scot-free. There is no such thing ever as getting off scot-free. There's only one way to be free. And that is through repentance and forgiveness. And so if if any brother or sister is caught in sexual sin, sin against the seventh commandment, of whatever kind, let them repent and seek the forgiveness of a gracious God. Well, what was the response of Jesus? Well, first of all, he did not step into the trap that the scribes and Pharisees had baited for him. At first he did not answer. Rather, he bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. What did he write? Wouldn't you love to know what he had written? Many suggestions have been named, some say, probably the names of the accusers, or the sins they were guilty of, or that he was just doodling on the ground to buy some time to think of what to say. Well, the fact is that we, are, that we simply are not told what Jesus wrote. A better thing to note, to notice, is not what he may have written, but that he wrote. And who it is who wrote with his finger on the ground. Writing with one's finger. God writing with his finger. What does that remind you of? Doesn't that make you think of Exodus 31, 18? I quote, And and he, the Lord God, the great I Am, gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Exodus 31 18 in the Gospel of John Jesus makes the point repeatedly that he is the Son of God he is God of God he he is the one in whom God is manifest he is the one in whom in whom God is tabernacling in the midst of the people of God he was there from the beginning He was there before Abram. Before Abram was, I am, he says. And then think of the the seven majestic I am statements of our Lord Jesus in the gospel according to John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Jesus is the great I am. I am, remember, is how God revealed himself in the burning bush to Moses. The great I am, who with his finger once wrote the law, the Ten Commandments, in blocks of stone, now comes in majestic humility, stoops, and uses his divine and holy finger to write in the dirt. Surely that is the point. Not what he wrote, but that he wrote. And who it is that did the writing. Now what happens in scribbles in the dirt, if you scribble in the dirt somewhere, or in the sand on the beach? You build a castle on the beach? What happens to that? What happens to scribbles in the dirt? Well, as soon as people begin walking, the scribbles very quickly disappear. They're wiped away. And so God has come to wipe away sin. As markings in the dirt quickly disappear, So Christ has come to make our sins before God's law disappear in the sight of God. Well, the men were not deterred so quickly. We're not deterred by the action of Jesus. But they continued to harangue him for an answer. Then Jesus stood and gave a wise and masterful answer. He said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus did not condone her activity. Neither did he condemn her. Jesus didn't say, no, don't apply the law of Moses. Rather, he said, let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone. And then he stooped again and he wrote in the dirt. Now you can only imagine that the woman would have been clenching her eyes tight, would have been awaiting the stones to begin raining down upon her until she was dead she would have thought, I'm finished, that's it, I'm done, it's the end of me. Instead, after a moment of silence, she heard the crunching of gravel as someone walked away. Then another, and another, and another, while not a single rock was thrown at her. Jesus did not annul the law. Rather, he exposed the hatred and the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. They had only wanted to stymie Jesus. As for the woman, well, who cares? She was just collateral damage that we had to use in our quest against Jesus. Their mission had been to trip him up and to bring him him to his death. Ultimately, not a single one of them was able to cast a stone. As Jesus forced each one of them to examine his own conscience, each man had to admit that he was a sinner. John tells us that having heard the lesson that Jesus gave them. All the men left, beginning with the oldest and then the younger. You see, older men have more sins on their conscience than when they were younger. Speaking for myself and not for any other brother in our midst, speaking for myself, now that I'm in my 60s, I know that I have accumulated more sins than I had accumulated by the time I was 30. The older you get, the more sin you have committed. No one was left but Jesus and the woman. And the crowd, the nameless crowd, that Jesus had been teaching. Wow, did they ever have a story to tell when they came home. You should see what I saw happen at the temple. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Then we hear the only three words that the woman spoke. No one, Lord. Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. And from go and from now on sin no more. As John 3, 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now we need to be clear here on what Jesus is not saying. He is not teaching here what he is not teaching here. He does not teach here that only the sinless can render judgment. He does not hereby set aside his own teaching on church discipline as he himself taught it in Matthew chapter 18. Nor does he render null and void what the Apostle Paul would say about the necessity of church discipline we need to watch out for each other and we need to call each other out and we need to hold each other accountable and we need to confront sinners. The whole, Old Te- the whole New Testament and the Old, for that matter, of course, teaches that. What is Jesus doing here? He's confronting hypocrites, confronting, confronting men who, who patted themselves on the back, who flattered themselves while they went after others. Men who were very adept at looking past a plank in their own eyes while they saw a speck of sawdust in others. Returning again to John Calvin, he says that man is not prevented by his own sin from punishing others, but he must first interrogate his own conscience. We must make w- war with sin. But we need to start with ourselves. When we shine the light of God's law we need to shine, shine it on our own hearts as well uh, first of all. That's where we begin with ourselves. Jesus shows the woman mercy. She thought that she was finished. But she wasn't. It was not the end of her. She was not finished because six months later the Lord Jesus would die on the cross and he would say, it is finished. Now you may be guilty. There may be some in our midst this morning who are guilty of heinous sin so great that you think I'm finished. No, beloved, you are you are not finished. You are not finished. Because Jesus said, It is finished. Now we need to hear that he heed the final admonition of Jesus. These words, go and sin no more. The woman needed to hear that. She was given another opportunity to live in obedience with her God. Jesus gave her an opportunity for a fresh start. Now, we don't know what the woman did. Our curiosity might get the better of us, and we say, oh, I wonder what she did. I wonder if she went back to her husband, if she apologized, if she repented, if she worked on her marriage. We we would like to know that, but we don't. However, what is more important than knowing the answer to that question is what are we going to do now? What am I going to do? What are you going to do? Now that we've heard these merciful words, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. From now on, sin no more. What are we going to do? What am I going to do? You too have an opportunity for a fresh start, and I do too. Turning away from sin, turning to the one who died for sinners on the cross, who said, it is finished. He shares that gospel out to us and calls us to follow him in obedience Thankful obedience. So drop your sins like the shabby, dirty coat it is and don't put it on again. And if you, in your foolishness, put it on again, then drop it once again. The only man righteous enough to demand the life of the adulterous woman handed her mercy. You see that? And he extends mercy to you too. You are not finished because Jesus said, it is finished. His last words were not a a sigh of resignation, oh, I'm finished. No, his last words were, it is finished. That's something different. It's a big difference between I'm finished and it is finished. That means that all has been accomplished. Everything that the Father had given the Son to do. His a perfect obedience. His atoning death on the cross. It's all finished, beloved. And so we can go forth thankfully, confidently, obediently. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Go and sin no more. Amen. Let us sing Psalm 123.